so we're designing the bullshit jobs just to keep having our roles in a way. So, how do we start? Hi, this is Aga and Łukasz, and this is Catching the Next Wave podcast, where we discuss the future of design. And much more. There are people who you meet on your path, who you connect with instantly. For me, that was Pim, our guest today. Pim is an architect and a designer who turned into the escape room designer and then into experience designer. And he is a person who looks for the best in people and tries to bring it into them. Pim, so happy that we can have you here in Warsaw, yeah. sitting with us. Thank I'm you for coming. I'm happy we can have the conversation face to face. Yeah. Although there is this funny microphone in between us. <laughs> <laughs> From architecture to designing escape rooms, how did it happen? When I started thinking about what I wanted to study, I asked myself, what would be something that I can keep on learning the rest of my life that keeps me curious? And I think architecture was the answer. And somehow, after I graduated, I was already working with my partner, Victor, and they drew me in to help develop Sherlock escape rooms. And it was a very natural, natural question. Sort of, hey, do you want to help? And it felt very good to search for something new, especially since at that time, in the architecture field, there was a crisis and I had a job, but I didn't like the way the culture in architecture was set up. Victor, who was our guest in season one, yeah. invited you over to join Sherlock. And your role was to design the puzzles. So the company was in their very early stage. And I think my role was as an architect to design the rooms, right? So uh, there's a long time I had the title of head of design, manifest the physical form, build the rooms also, design the puzzles. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How do you approach it? Like, how do you design an escape room? I think there's many approaches. I can only talk about the way we approach it, which is we drive from the location. So we look for what's the story in the room that we have in front of us. And we were very lucky to be in this old stock exchange in Amsterdam, right? That was designed by a famous architect, Berlage. And it also has this beautiful vault complex. So basically coming from what do we have? What is there now? And can we build a story around it that already exists also? For example, our first room is called The Architect. Yeah. It's about Berlage. Which is about Berlage. And there's so many stories about Berlage uh -huh. that he was part of the Freemasons. There is a book 
that he says, okay, this is a palace for the people. The room that we are in is the last remaining original room. So they haven't refurbished it yet. So all those elements was like, okay, if he was part of a secret society, and this is a building he created, and we have the room that has been untouched or is sort of still the, in its most original state, can we make a story out of this? And then at the same time, this room is in the basement. The basement was being refurbished, right? So this was actual going on. And we said, okay, if we combine these elements, what if Berlacher has written in this book about the palace of the people that there's this one room that they cannot touch or ever refurbish and there he left some secrets of the secret society that we think he was part of and all those elements are true right so i think that's the basis of how we approach that room and from there we really try to see okay he he lived in a certain time what are the objects that he might have used being in that room so we're trying to almost fall in love with Berlage and think about him being in that room and then him trying to hide secrets. So how would Berlage have hidden secret elements in that room for others to discover when he's not there anymore? I think that's the approach we take on every room. This is just the first one. This is also something that I can call story building or world building, right? And if you're, the world that you build is so rich, and it's so easy to build interactions or build puzzles from there. By the, both the architect and the vault. And I must say, if you're ever in Amsterdam, go and try them. You have to come with a group, at <laughs> least three, four people. Four is the perfect number. But it's really such a unique experience to do both. And they are very different. The vault and the architect, they have such a different storylines and different setup that's really distinct. So it's not like something that comes as one picture, but something that stays in my head as two different stories, which is super amazing. But there are so many not so good escape rooms. What do you think goes wrong there? I think the differentiation is, or how I look at it is, there is rooms with puzzles. Let's call them puzzle rooms. And there's rooms that are more story rooms. And they both fall under the umbrella of escape rooms. And then within those rooms, you have puzzles that you like or puzzles that are, you know, you have mathematical puzzles or visual puzzles. And then in the story rooms, you have mysteries like we create, but there's also horror rooms or happy rooms or crazy themes. So I think there's a lot of rooms that fall under the umbrella of escape rooms and if you start comparing them you can say oh this one is good or this one is bad or this one is crappy and i think it's on the one hand a matter of taste and on the other hand it's that everything falls under the same umbrella so i just don't like a puzzle room right and i think a lot of other people like puzzle rooms and then going to the extent to say, yeah, there are really bad escape rooms. Yeah, I agree. And I think what goes wrong, we're building something in a new market. The tools to make an escape room are so easily available. So there are so many people out there that are making escape rooms, which is different than you can compare it to. Everybody has a video camera. 
so that everybody can make a movie and try to sell a movie, right? But it's very different than if you have a Hollywood director creating a Hollywood movie or professional creating a movie. And I think in the same parallel, this is what's happening in escape rooms, especially because it's such a new market, right? There is amateurs and there's professionals. Mm -hmm. And we haven't really found a way to distinguish them. And the public also is still in search for, oh, what is an escape room? And how can we distinguish their quality? Yeah. Like you said, there's more and more escape rooms out there. The whole trend started in 2011, right? That was the first one in Romania. Something more like that. Around that. <laughs> yeah. Why do you think they are becoming so popular? There is a deep longing for something. And escape rooms are one of the answers, apparently. I think the longing is for something that connects us for a short period of time. So it's like escapism a little bit. And if you look into economics, I think one of the bigger industries is video games, even though we don't, or at least I didn't realize that so much. And then escape room is partly video game, but in real life. Mm -hmm. So playing is something we all like a lot and we know. And then it is doing something with a group that has connectedness to each other. And it's very engaging. And I think those elements makes us want to go to escape rooms more, trying to get away from society, sort of escaping reality, tapping into sort of this imaginary world where things happen that don't happen in the normal world, and then experiencing that together with your friends. I think it's something magical in a way. There is another thing that we've talked a lot about, which is creating an alibi for people to be different from who they are on a daily basis. Is yeah. there an element of it in this reason why people go to the escape rooms? For me, it's hard to talk about escape rooms in general, because I, yet again, in the puzzle rooms, I don't think there is really an alibi. I think in, for example, the vault where you have to play a role right? You are breaking into a vault and there's two or three actors from our side that help you role play. This gives you an alibi on the one hand to be playful, but also an alibi to pretend for one moment to be a superhero in like a Mission Impossible movie. Yeah, so it does in a way give you an alibi to do something you don't normally do that much, which is great. Being playful, take a role, I do also see that there's, like in group dynamics, people take upon a role in the group that is similar to how they take the role outside of a room. And by design, the rooms are set up in such way that you need each other. So I'm not sure if this is alibi, but I'm sure that you discover new elements of each other by going through a room and that gives you the new perspective on people. So I think this last week we were talking a lot about the quote, it's not traveling to new landscape, but seeing the same landscape with new perspectives. I think this is something that happens in an escape room, that if you go through it with a group of friends, you don't need a new friend, you are seeing your friends with new perspectives, or you're looking at your friends with a new perspective. The thing is that sometimes 
you discover the qualities of people that you might be surprised by. After doing the vault, which we failed to mm -hmm. finish, I had this conclusion that if you are a company and you want to test a bunch of people, whether they are collaborative or not, just put them into an escape room for an hour and you will know all about who they are, how they behave as a group, how they can collaborate and how they can achieve a success or fail. It was eye-opening for me how powerful tool an escape room can be in these kind of processes. Is this a byproduct coincidence? Was it designed for it? The escape room itself was not designed for hiring process. I think it's a byproduct. I do think like everybody that works at Sherlock first has done our escape room. So it's part of our hiring process is going through the escape room. And what I love is that if you put people in a room and set the time pressure, put them under stress, like they react totally different. So there is no assessment test. There is no scenario play that can represent what happens in an escape room. And that just is amazing to me. I think once we saw this, we also questioned ourselves, wait a minute, how is a hiring process going? And it's two people sitting in front of each other asking questions. Basically, all those questions you can probably find on the internet so you can prepare very well for your answers. And what does it say about the person? Maybe where they went to college, what their previous experience was, but not how they will interact with the team or what their qualities is when they are under stress. So we designed a hiring process escape room <laughs> where there's two people in a similar room and there's different puzzles. One is analytical, one is sort of creative, one is collaborative, one is competitive. And we just look at what they do, when they do it and how they do it. And then you get a profile out of that. By the way, do companies use it? Yes. Yeah. And uh, can you share, I don't know if you can, but can you share which companies? I'm curious. So the project that I'm talking about is uh, Abbey and Amro, which uh -huh. is a bank. The bank. Mm -hmm. uh, so we created a hiring-ish escape room for them. That's super cool. And other companies have come to us to say, hey, can we go through the room and have somebody sit in your control room to watch? Yeah. I've been working with one of my clients and they hire a lot of people these days. And I said, like, please don't go through the regular process. Just put them as a team in an escape room and just sit on the other side, like you just said, and observe. You will know everything. Yeah. I also talked to VU, which is a university in Amsterdam, Freie Universiteit, that is developing a way to teach surgeons how to deal with stress. Because this is one of the most stressful situations is if you have a patient on the table, right? And you got to solve a problem and you have to work together. And so the clock can is an escape room represent something that is similar to the table, sort of the surgeon room? Wow. So we're looking into, can we do a research project around it? So I think there's so many angles or there's such a rich world within the world of escape rooms. Makes me excited to see where it will go. You also mentioned that there are like other companies that come to you for different projects. What do they come for? There's a lot of companies that see the power of marketing escape rooms, right? So they're using escape rooms as a marketing tool. HBO has done it 
I even see now Stranger Things is making an ARG, alternative reality game. But also, for example, Google wants to engage people in their privacy, or they want to talk about what actually is privacy and how do we deal with it as a company. So coming to a customer and just talking about it is not so interesting. So how can we create something that is engaging, playful and fun, and at the same time teaches you a lesson? So therefore, for Google, we created a Charlie in the Chocolate Factory type of experience where you are playing the role of Google. So you are sort of YouTube or you're playing maps where Aga as a person in the room is asking, oh, I have to go from A to B and you have to measure out how far that is and how much time it takes to cycle there. So you kind of experience what Google is doing. It was called Google Backstage. And I think Google is one example. We also did it for diabetes fund to gain awareness. So instead of saying, oh, do you know what diabetes is and how many people do have that? We just travel around with an escape room and say, do you want to play a fun game for five minutes? So there they go through the experience of having diabetes themselves through puzzles and sound and other things that we designed there. And after that experience, we just explain them, hey, what you just experienced is similar to somebody who has diabetes. Wow. And we can actually see you know, the look on someone's face is like, whoa, the experience was intense. And now I can actually relate that to somebody who has diabetes. Whoa, I didn't realize. So there's this, like a coin that falls into place. So it's an extremely powerful empathy building tool. Extremely, yes. Wow. Yeah. And the conference? There are so many conferences out there that have people sit on a chair, listen to somebody talk. And I think that's the most boring thing you can do. And there's a lot of money going into a conference. So for MPI, we Which is MP meeting professionals international. international. So it's a conference for conference makers. We had one hour or one hour and a half time slot. And we just locked them in the conference room and had them worked their way out by working together. So each of them had like a puzzle box that they had to solve. And then the box became a QR code. So it was very engaging being in teams, working together, having a puzzle that related to the conference itself. And then each participant needed to participate in order for everybody to escape. Totally. Because one was MPI, the other, the tech mission, mm -hmm. it was more like, how do we engage children to be interested in technology, mm -hmm. choosing a path of their study. So we set this big area in the harbor of Rotterdam with a lot of containers and challenges that involve technology and had them all work towards a goal to charge the power station, which was this beautiful Tesla coil. Oh. Uh, on the one hand, I mean, it looks beautiful. And the effect that it has is, you know, just like so it will definitely have a lasting impression on children because it's very memorable. We're just very playful with, oh no, the power has, <laughs> has gone out and in one hour, the whole of Rotterdam doesn't have any power anymore. Do you want guys want to help us? It was like, of course we want to help. Um, and then just go through all these stations that are fun and have a relationship with, for example, voltage, right? So they, they get to learn some of the words and then eventually work towards charging that Tesla coil. Hmm, that sounds fun. 
Yes. How many kids did you get there? I think around 250. Oh my goodness, that's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> But they went in 20 at a time. Uh-huh. Well, it's still quite a lot. Like you design an experience for 20 people at the same time. That's not a trivial thing. This is actually the one that we adapted for children. So this one is also for companies where you can go in with maximum of 50 people. Oh, wow. And the, what I love about this one is the eventual goal is to work together. But because we put them into smaller groups, they start competing against each other, even though we never say you're in competition. And that is something that I think amazed me so much is in companies, we put people in different teams and then suddenly we start competing with each other. And it doesn't make any sense. Nobody says you're in competition, but just the fact by putting people in different teams, we're competing. So it's us and them. Yeah. And I love how we can use this human behavior in our game design and then trying to show people at the same time, hey, what just happened? Why did you do that? Nobody told you. And then eventually there's this aha moment. It's like, oh, we did indeed were in competition and we had to work together in order to win the game. I love how that's like something you go through in a playful way and in a game design way and hopefully has something that they can take with them in their real life, in the company. And yeah, we should work together instead of competing with each mm -hmm. other. It's much more visceral than when you just tell people to behave in a different way, right? Yes, I think you have to go through it, then have that aha moment. I mean, I could tell you what love is, but if you go through love, you have a different experience. You mentioned before that escape rooms are one of these new ways for people to connect with each other. There is another thing that you do, uh, which is called the stone soup, which is yet another way to make people connect with each other in a new way. Can you tell a little bit more about the concept? I think the basis of stone soup is how can we create a weekend that is co-creative, engaging, and somehow has no hierarchy? Can we organize something where everybody contributes to the same soup? Where stone soup coming from a folk still says there is a pot and there is one stone in it and the traveler says, hey, this is a beautiful stone soup. And then a lot of villagers, because he, he went to a village, ask him, oh, what is this beautiful soup? He's like, this is stone soup. And of course they want to have a taste of this beautiful soup and the traveler says well then of course you can have it but it's even better if you have some herbs and spices for it and the village was like of course so slowly people are putting elements into the stone soup and then eventually it's this very tasteful yet every time different soup with actually beginning from nothing it's sort of a container and then depending what people put in the container is what comes out of it and somehow this is a very beautiful way of how people can live together work together be together and it helps to be vulnerable and safe i can go on and on about stone soup get started somehow with the question i am leading a company and What is that leadership? How can you lead by 
empowering others, creating something that goes beyond your imagination, that you could not even imagine would happen. I knew this was possible, but I've never experienced it myself. So I'm talking a lot about, oh, giving experiences to others. I think stone soup was one of the things, can I make an experience for myself to actually embody uh, something that I want to learn? And then having people come together around a set of principles that I truly believe in, which are, for example, flexible hierarchy or radical interdependence. Have them co-create dinners, workshops, anything that they want right there is truly magical. So can you tell a little bit more how it works? It's based around a shared intention. So we start with an intention. We want to have a weekend full of workshops around experience design. Mm -hmm. This is for the experience designers mainly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yes. And what happens then is you have different roles that people can fill. So you need to fill a certain amount of roles. There's an initiator. There might be a holistic lead. There's somebody responsible for the venue, somebody responsible for food, somebody responsible for transport. So you already have, by organizing it, five to six people to be responsible for a certain element. And then people volunteer to do that. And then by inviting more and more people, you can actually see that everybody is organizing. So that gives you the agency or the empowerment to help as well organizing things. Yeah, it's fairly simple. That's uh, very powerful. Yeah. And also there's, there's all these elements of, okay, a big group of 40 people can be quite large. So in order to feel safe, we set up meal teams and those meal teams are then eight people. So you already have eight people that you are connected with before the event talking about, oh, what are we going to cook? How are we going to do it? So then when you're there, you have like a, a smaller and a safe group. So the rest of the day, people fill in the workshop when they want it. So basically everyone can bring their own workshop and their own idea of what they want to put forward for the participants, right? Yes, everybody has something to give or something to experiment with. If it's cooking or if it's whatever expertise you have, maybe drawing or writing poetry or giving a LARP experience or even walking and finding rocks. This is something that you give and people will join. So you learn a lot from everyone's expertise. I think that the magic of the stone soup is that you create a magic circle there, right? So the magic circle is basically something that comes from LARP, live action role playing, where we say, oh, if you join in this moment or in this place, we have a set of rules. And these rules are here for safety, vulnerability, and this is how we play together. Especially in LARP, it's important when you are in character, you need to have a certain set of safety rules. So in Stone Soup, we have an opening ritual where we invite everybody in that Stone Soup circle, the magic Stone Soup circle. And that is also the set of principles. That's our culture. And we also try to give everybody an accountability buddy or be seen in a way. Yeah, so then you're invited in this space that has certain rules that can hold you. It's kind of holding space. 
for vulnerability and creativity. The season is about magic. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> you only talk about escape rooms. Now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so what is magic for you? I think magic is something that goes beyond my imagination or something that I do not understand but find very beautiful or being in awe. I think it's magic. And I think magic consists of, you know, there's of course the art of magic that illusionists have mastered. So there's a lot of techniques, sleight of hand. But I think for me, magic is being in awe, especially with nature, I think. Sitting under a tree and then thinking, how in the world is it possible that this tree is here taking up CO2, going through the seasons, living, feeding the ground, or looking at a star and thinking about, on the one hand, okay, we understand the star is already dead and it traveled through the air and light travels for a certain amount of time, but the moment it catches my eye, it doesn't exist anymore. And just <laughs> sitting with that, yeah, I think I don't have words for it. We talked about the escape rooms and the fact that people want to have those extraordinary experiences. We also talk about the stone soup, which is, again, this kind of experience that goes beyond the regular world. Why do you think people are looking for this magic in their life? I'm not sure if we're looking for it. I think it's just there. We just don't see it. So we're creating magic instead of seeing the magic around us. Why is it so? This is a thought I had just this week. Maybe it's off topic. If you look at Joe Pine's experience economy, right, it goes from products to services to experiences to transformative experiences. But there is no other stage. And when we talk about transformative experiences, we go so much more into spirituality, nature, meditation maybe even. So what if it's instead of a like a linear line, actually it's a, a circle. So after transformative experiences, we go back to products. And if you think about that, everybody is now thinking, oh, what's in my product? Where's the raw ingredients from it? How do I connect back to me and nature and sort of like basic root elements. So I see it as a cyclical movement and we're just at the tip of that cycle. Uh -huh. That's why we're now looking for that so-called magic that's always been there and we're searching for it maybe externally. However, it's more internal, I think. This is interesting because in the past people would have legends and myths and the stories of dwarves and elves and whatever other creatures living in the forest that are either dangerous or they are friendly. And it was something that was making people have this magic that goes beyond their imagination, like you mentioned. And today, because we know that certain things don't exist, there is a different way of looking for this feeling of having magic around us. Yeah, I think it's the interpretation of magic. I don't remember the story exactly, but there was, I think it was in Australia, 
there's this mountain and there was a girl that was always looking for firewood and her mother told her that there's this one tree and that's a tree of the gods so she was not allowed to take the woods from those tree this sounds very much today as a, a myth or something magical and we don't believe in god and it, it's not magic and now scientific research shows that those trees are actually having certain type of roots that hold the soil together. So I think we, we need to try and interpret myths or magic in the modern world without dismissing the knowledge that it comes with. So we talk about how the myths and the legends, they were these placeholders for magic for people and how it changed today. But there's another thing that the two of us do together. We run our radical design workshops where we want to do a completely different thing because we want to take people into the future to get them change their way of thinking. So we did it with the students twice. And the very interesting thing is that indeed they are able to disconnect from their impressions of how the world works like today. And they are able to really think in terms of different solutions and alternative ways of approaching certain topics like funerals or weddings or... Birthday uh, celebration. Yeah, gift giving, yeah. things like this. And I was always curious, what do you think happens in those workshops? What are the triggers that make them disconnect from the present? So what you're saying that we're trying to get them into the future, mm -hmm. I think that's something we use as an alibi to shift their paradigm. So what we do is we pretend to be Max from the future. So that's the alibi that we have. To, but we can question the status quo of today without the student saying, ah, but you know. Yeah. It's because we have a character, right? So when they try to explain us what a funeral is or what a birthday is, we have the ability to ask them questions that they accept. It's actually a lot of fun, isn't it? It is super fun. <laughs> why do you why do you marry? Yeah. <laughs> why would two people? Can you marry a cat? I remember. <laughs> <laughs> do you remember the pasta tree? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think that I was sleeping under a pasta tree. Yeah. And you were allowed to eat from it. Yes. Uh, and you were married to a cat. Yes. I mean, it's, 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 it's <laughs> yeah, that's slightly crazy. But on the other hand, like one thing is that indeed the students, they are shocked that we say these things, but they accept it. This is such a magical thing for me that they are not going and they, they are not knocking their heads saying, hey, like, you know, guys, you are from our times. You know how these things work, but they really fall for this narrative. And it keeps on puzzling me a little bit. Of course, we do the transformation. We do a lot of things in this workshop that sets the scene, that creates this magic circle that you were mentioning before. But I keep on wondering, and perhaps we could ask them the next time, mm -hmm. what is the trigger that makes them believe us? Yeah, I think they don't believe us. They accept our, the role that we're taking. Mm -hmm. Similar to if we're looking to a theater show, we accept the framework of this guy is an actor and he's playing something. Mm -hmm. And we just want to believe that. And we have the ability to even fool ourselves for a moment to actually engage or be immersed in that theater piece. So as humans, we have the ability to fool ourselves and go with that, which is on the one hand, very magical. And we use that power 
to ask them questions and make them realize that there's a lot of assumptions that they've made or that they've learned that might be false or might be different or can or they be can different. disregard yes yeah i think on the one hand opening your mind or even opening creativity and what i'm excited for is being a parent and then having my child ask me the questions around why is this a couch and you know why do we eat while we are sitting all the basic things that are so natural for me and then explain why we do it and then it's sort of having the child be us in that workshop mm -hmm. and i think it's magical to try to keep your child mind alive I just read the book from David Kelly, Creative Confidence. And one of the quotes that I really enjoyed was the translator from the Dalai Lama, that there is in Tibetan language, there's no word for being creative. And the closest translation is being natural. <laughs> right. And that's so beautiful that being natural in your natural state is very creative. And I think a child is so much in their natural state that I don't know why and I don't know how, but we're losing maybe our natural state. Yeah, you, you're making a, a point here that as children, we had the imagination to create this magical world around us. And somehow as we grow up, it gets suppressed. If we go back to escape rooms, there's a lot of playfulness or child mind or even becoming your superhero. So it taps into an experience that we've had for maybe 18 years, maybe 12 years, which is a long period of time. So maybe it's a longing for our first years when we came to the world to regain that in a certain way. You mentioned that as we grow up, we lose this natural ability of bringing magic into our lives. We don't train the muscle. Yeah. yeah. I think we don't lose it. We don't train our muscle enough so i have two questions here but okay. i ask first uh, so like how do you think we can train that muscle one element that i try is is there one thing in my life or in my daily habits or rituals that i can just change it's like it's super simple i'm going this route to my work what happens if i instead of biking i go walking things that are i always call them elephant paths there's like really deep impressions then it's hard to move to another path, right? So the more often you walk one path, then of course, everybody's going to walk that path as well. Like if you go through a forest and you see the path that has been laid out for you, it's kind of like, okay, we have to go there. But if there's no path, everybody would probably walk a different direction. So training yourself to walk different paths sounds very abstract, but it's sort of questioning the very daily routines that you maybe have. It um, keeps your eye open and see the world as it is, or as it can be. Yeah. Rather than being internally focused on your thoughts and your feelings. Because if you walk a known path, you have to pay attention to the world. If you walk the known path, you can ignore it in a way, right? Yeah, and you stay curious. You're like, oh, how does this affect me? Hmm, interesting. Okay. And then, of course, there's things that you like and dislike uh, eventually. But I think it's a beginning for training that. 
Am I understanding it correctly that you need curiosity to be able to see magic in the world? Yeah. I mean, what I, I think I said in the beginning, magic is something maybe that you don't understand. Something that when you're in awe, it goes beyond your imagination. At that moment, beyond your imagination, because we all have different imaginations. And then being curious, oh, how does that actually happen? So that curiosity is, I think, a very important element. And training that instead of saying, oh, we're talking to these two microphones. That's very <laughs> normal. And then if you start being curious about the fact that I'm creating sound and then sound is this weird thing and that's being recorded through this, I don't know, somebody made this and created that that goes through like this wire into a machine and then it records and eventually it's going to send it out to the world where a lot of people are going to listen to it. I don't know, this it goes a little bit beyond my imagination. Like I accept it and it's great, but it's a weird experience sitting in this room talking to you, knowing that it will be something that maybe a hundred people can hear. I mean, that's already very magical. <laughs> Speaking of magic, there is another workshop that you created with our close friend Jerica Cleland, who was a guest also on the first season. Can you tell a little bit more about this workshop? I'm super curious. I wasn't there. Oh, yeah. So the workshop was called Journey into the Imagination. That's a very promising title, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think it taps into the very basic elements that we as humans know is on the one hand storytelling, which has been there for centuries, but also our imagination. In our field, we're doing a lot of immersion and we're spending more and more on how do we immerse people into a story. And what we wanted to show is that you don't have to do a lot to tell a story to somebody and create this beautiful world that you can see. So you have a guide that tells a story and the other one is blindfolded and they just start with an image. It's just randomly selected image. And they start taking you to that world and describing the world while you're blindfolded. And then slowly you're given the option to go to location A, B or C. You make that choice. Of course, you don't reach the destination. So we're using storytelling techniques together with your imagination. And people have a wonderful experience. And the only thing we're doing is blindfolding you and telling a story and giving you a picture and, and of course the tools to do that. But I think once you have those tools, you don't need a lot to give people this amazing journey to another world, right? And I think by telling somebody a story while they are blindfolded, you also learn that everybody wants to inhabit a certain amount of imagination. So I think there is this real power of the space to inhabit. And the example that I used is if I show us here an image of a beach, we are all going to be on that beach. But if I say the word beach without showing the image, we will all be on a different beach, mm -hmm. right? And, and, and then it becomes something personal. And I think the moment it becomes more personal to me, it's more powerful and I'm more emotionally engaged or invested in the story. And realizing this, looking back at movies I saw when I was young, 
I think the power is where as a child, you try to become the superhero or the main character from that story. It's not only seeing the story, but playing and acting it out in your own world, even on the street. And I think that the Lion King or the remake of the Lion King is a good example where the first Lion King, it was all animated. And we all accept that the drawing of a lion is a lion and that he talks because it's far from the real world. And the new Lion King is so beautifully real. Like there is a sense of awe there. I would even say it's magical how they have recreated the real world. The moment the lions start to talk, I lose my sense of, on the one hand, I think imagination, because it doesn't align with the real world. So I don't have enough place to inhabit to make the story mine. It's too real and kind of alienating. Mm -hmm. And I think there it lost the power of that imagination space. Actually, what you are talking about makes me think about books versus movies. Mm -hmm. So it's a whole different thing when you read a book and you imagine how the world might look like and a very, very different experience when you see this world being created through someone else's imagination on a screen. Yes, that's why so many people that I talk to like, for example, Harry Potter books better than the movie. And also, this is an interesting, the cover design of Harry Potter books are very different across the world. And I know that the Dutch versions are voted the best because they leave room for enough imagination. So I don't think in one of them you can actually see the face of Harry Potter. And on others you do. So it leaves the space for the reader. We were talking about escapism of the escape rooms. And sometimes this world of magic can be an excuse to run away from your real world. So do you think that there is a right balance between uh, magic and reality? The lines are blurring and I love to walk on those lines. And I think that's where the most interesting elements happen to be on that line. Like with your question, I'm thinking about the movie Avatar, where somebody goes into a kind of VR world. For me, that movie was extremely powerful because there was a main character going into a world that was magical. And it was so much more magical than his own world. However, the emotions that he felt, the relationships that he built were, in his experience, real. In that movie, the question is, do you want to live in the real world or in the magical world? I mean, for me, the answer is, of course, in the magical world, because the experience of the magical world is also real. So I don't see that there is a difference. It's just a matter of perspective, right? We all constructed the real world. And just by constructing a magical world doesn't mean it's less real. And I think there is the true power of shaping your own world and your own perspective. And maybe that's sort of the magic. Like we all have this magic wand of saying, hey, I want to believe this story. I'm gonna live by these beliefs. So if you ask if there's a balance between the real world and the magical world, I don't see a difference. There is no difference. It's both the same. Are you saying that the magic in our lives come from the narrative that we tell ourselves? Yeah, I think we have the ability to see magic and to create magic. So we shape our own narrative. And I think it's all about that narrative, which is a 
maybe a hard reality for some people. It's back again to our workshop that we're giving is just accepting that a marriage is a marriage as we've been learned to it, then it becomes something that's just as is. But once you start shaping it in a different way that you want, then suddenly it becomes very magical. And it's just the story or the ritual that you design around it that creates the magic because it can be very practical and getting married can be just a signature on a piece of paper. But it can also be this communal ritual that everybody feels a certain connectedness. They say, oh, that was a magical ceremony. We've talked a little bit about businesses coming to Sherlock to to run certain projects with you. I think that the world of business is very much embedded in reality. How would magic help it? It's a hard question. I think what magic does is bring us back to being human and lose a little bit all the constructs that we've created. Just saying, hey, there's another human in front of me. What do I see? What do I hear? Where are we going? And can you have fun with your team or with your business? And probably that will create a better product or service just because of the fact that you're having fun and you're being you and you create a magical collaboration. What do you think? I agree with you that the current business misses the playfulness, this childish joy of being together and doing things together without constraining yourself from every possible perspective. When you are in a professional setup, you put a mask and you are supposed to be this kind of character. What I see a lot is that people who are really open and nice and creative, they go to work and suddenly they lose all these capabilities because they put themselves in a role or in a setup where everything that defines them as those creative beings is being stripped off. And I think that if you manage to add this magical element, like you were talking about the escape rooms or what we were talking about the workshops, people might find themselves in a situation that they forget about the mask that they put on. And then they suddenly this potential that they've got as children is released again. Or because when you said taking on a mask, maybe it's more about accepting, acknowledging that you have a mask and therefore you can take many masks. So it's kind of an alibi to not be you but be a role because that's basically what we're doing we're playing a role in an organization and that's not you it's the role that's assigned to you but we can describe those roles so can you take that role that's our alibi to be in our workshop right we are mags from the future and we can ask stupid questions and i think having those alibis in a business can be so powerful so it's like with technology, it says that technology is neither good or bad, nor it is neutral. So the same with magic. Yeah. The stronger I can feel disappointed or sad, the stronger I can feel happiness. It's like this waves. Because if you're always in a neutral state, then you never know what is the non-neutral state. So if you've never experienced sorrow, then you can never cherish happiness as much. So enjoying all these states is sort of feeling alive. 
And that's where I enjoying if I feel sad, just to sit with that. Because then I can enjoy even more being happy. And I think in that sense also, maybe technology can be good and bad. But we can only see that it's good because it can be bad. And it's always in the eyes of who's thinking about the good and the bad, right? Because what you believe is good can be experienced by me as being bad. We got really philosophical. Yeah, there we go. Very <laughs> philosophical, really... I'm sorry. <laughs> no, 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 that's good. <laughs> so as we approach the end, if you had a magical book to recommend to our listeners, what would it be? It's called Wayfinders with the subtitle Why Ancient History Matters in the Modern World or something like that. It talks a lot about ancient wisdom where one of the stories is about wayfinders, which are these people that travel on the ocean without having a compass. So the only way for them to find the next island is to look at the stars, to feel the warmth of the ocean, to feel the current of the ocean, and having this 3D compass in their head to combine those information to find the island. And that's just... For me, like being a wayfinder is super magical. And this book has multiple stories of magical ancient wisdom that I very much enjoy reading. If you were to say what was the most magical thing that you have ever experienced, what would it be? I don't like the question <laughs> <laughs> because it, it phrases it like what's most magical. It's like a search for something like a high or a low. And it also compares moments to each other, where I think the magic is in not doing that. So therefore, my answer is actually the most magical thing that I experienced or am still experienced is being alive and but really feel to be alive. Pim. Thank you for this very philosophical discussion. I didn't think that it's going to turn this way, but it was really <laughs> enjoyable. <laughs> so thank you for joining us here in Warsaw and um, best of luck with being thank alive. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me here. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Catching the Next Wave podcast. We would love to hear from you on Twitter at Malka6 and at DLS6. You can find more details on www.catchingthenextwavepodcast.com. I don't like it. You are boring.